Welcome to Magnificat Proclaims, presented to you by Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women. Whether this is your first time you've listened to our program, or you have been with us many times before, we are delighted that you have joined us. I'm Donna Ross, your host for today's program. We pray that today may be a special day in your life as you experience through the personal testimony of our featured guest, the presence of Jesus Christ among us. He is alive and well. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today Father Raymond Skenesny. Father served in the United States Navy. In 1952, he entered a Trappist monastery in Ogden, Utah, and was ordained to the priesthood on December 23, 1961. Father Ray completed postgraduate studies for degrees in theology and biblical studies in Rome. After serving many years in parish life, he retired at St. John Newman in Irvine. He exemplifies the beauty of the priesthood through humility, true agape love, and tireless service to Christ's church. Once again, it is an honor to introduce our speaker, Father Raymond Skenesny. Well, I'm glad to be here. I've known uh, Michelle for quite a number of years now. In a few days, I'm going to be 81 years of age. You know, you're supposed to give a personal testimony. Well, where do I start? Go from 0 to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 40. By the time I got to 70 to 80, I'm quite sure you'd all be asleep and put your hair on the So what I'm going to do is just go over certain incidents in my life, uh, certain periods in my life that uh, as I look back upon them, uh, I, I think I, as I think about everything in my life, as I think all of you should, you realize nothing happens by chance. You are who you are. There's a divine providence that guides and directs and helps us in all our lives. So the first segment I'm going to deal with is that I, where I was born. Something about my family. You know, I was born in a small coal mining town in Pennsylvania in the year 1929. That's a long time ago. And um, on May the 11th, of all places, sometimes it's, uh, it's in harmony with Mother's Day. But... Uh, I started thinking about that. It just, why, why was I born there? Well, because my grandparents, who came from Poland or Germany, one was from German side, one was from the Polish side, uh, they, when they came to the United States back in the 1880s and 1890s, uh, they had to have sponsors at that particular time, and that's the only way you could come here. And in this particular case, both uh, 
on both sides of my family. The uh, sponsors were from that particular area in Pennsylvania. It was a huge coal mining section. Pittsburgh was always the coal mining center in the United States. And as a result, if they had had sponsors in Minnesota or some other place, I would have been, they would have gone there. But that's where they showed up, and that's where they stayed. And right at the particular moment, of course, that's all gone, that particular area and all the mines, most of them and everything else. But uh, that's where they were, and uh, that's where uh, my parents were born, in that particular south of Pittsburgh, about 30 miles, a place called Connellsville, in that area around there. And that's where ultimately I was born. You know, you start, when I start thinking about that, you know, I was growing up, I better look at my watch because I might be too long up here. When I was growing up, say 1938, 37, uh, my grandfather, I would be, I went to a public school right close to their home, about 100 yards away. Uh, he could listen in shortwave radio to Hitler speak on the radio. And he would, I always remember him telling his sons, he said, that man is a terrible man he's going to cause a great amount of harm. He has a lot of charism to what he says, how he says it. And uh, he's going to cause great harm. Well, I didn't realize what they were really talking about. Um, but 1939 rolled around, or 1938, and he went into Czechoslovakia, and we started uh, Poland in September 1st, 1939, and we start the Second World War. Uh, the Zimmerman family, that's on my mother's side, they had six sons and six, uh, six uh, girls. All of the sons went to war. One of them was killed in New Guinea, and one fought in all the wars in the Pacific Ocean. He managed to survive. Another was a tank commander in North Fort Knox, and all of them were in the war one place or another. But it was a, uh, it was, so I remember all that. I remember as a youth uh, peddling papers. I was in the early years of high school looking at, I remember this one um, newspaper had all across the front of it, it said, uh, what did it say? Um, 45, 45 B-17 planes were shot down uh, going to Trieste. And every B-17 plane had 10 men in it. And I was thinking to myself, I was peddling these papers, that's 450 men that woke up and went to war and were killed over Germany. And uh, that was just a common event at that time, but it was something really stuck in my mind. And so that was a part of my growing up process in my life. Fortunately, I was too young to get into that war, and my dad was too old to get into it. He did go down to the um, uh, military, what do they call it, where they wanted to sign up people for the army. I think he drank a little bit too much that evening, and he went down to sign up. <laughs> but they found out that he had about six children at that particular time, and he, the guy who was going to sign him up, he found out, he said, get out of here. He said, you just want the United States government to take care of your family. So, you know, <laughs> so that ended that. But it is, it was, so I think of that particular period of my life, growing up, going to high school at that time from, uh, graduated in 1946 from uh, the high school that was there. And during those years, uh, it was, uh, my family had uh, were nine children, although the final baby died after about six months, so there were eight, of, eight children. And uh, one thing I always remember is uh, how I passed on a coal mine one time and I saw these men coming out of the mines uh, and the faces as black as black can be from the coal dust. And in fact, my dad worked there uh, in the mines and uh, I never saw him that way, but he, right next to him was my godfather. Well, my godfather was killed in the mines right next to him. So you always were, in those coal mines, if you're, we just had a coal mining incident in West Virginia, you always had a kind of a fear if you ever heard the, when you heard this whistle blow. If you, knew you heard the whistle blow, you know something was happening in the mine. 
and the wives and everybody else would head for the coal mine. What's going on? What's happened? You know, who was being killed or what has happened there? Because it was a very dangerous place to work. However, he was transferred into the pumping room and took care of the pumps after a while. And then finally they moved, oh, it's been about 50 years after the war when things shut down, they moved here to California. So, but at the meantime, I was, when I was um, graduated from school in 1946, uh, then I went off to the Navy myself. One thing I will say, because that particular time, once I left, I was 17 years old and about one month, right out of high school. And I remember my mom telling me, Ray, when she bid me goodbye, you know, crying tears, and I was leaving, and telling me, so soon, Ray, so soon. You're leaving so soon. And, uh, and I did. Because uh, as a youth, you know, you want to go out. You don't want to stay. There's nothing there. You want to go out. You want to see things and do things. But um, one thing I always say, just to mention my family, about one of the things I received from the family, my mother and my father, were, first of all, my mom was a religious person. We said the rosary very often, practically every night, made sure that we kids were all dressed up for Sunday to go to church, and that we, uh, we would go to church. I became an altar server, so I, was, so I was part of the church in that sense. My mother worked in the church, especially when they had strawberry festivals or things of that nature, and she also took care and cleaned the church every week. So uh, the church was, for me, a reality in my life. My dad, I think my dad was uh, more there by more the influence of his, his wife than himself. Um, but he, after, you know, ultimately, he would become uh, very, very uh, active in the church. But at that particular time, I would say the influence of my life came from my mother. And one of the prime, primary influences in my life regards religion was she had a great love for Mary. So I, I think that uh, where my love for Mary arose from that. Uh, I've always had that uh, sense of uh, Mary as my mother. And uh, we always had this picture of uh, Our Lady of La Salette. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of Our Lady of La Salette. That's where she's sitting down with her hands over her face and she's weeping and crying. It's from the southern part of France because of the sins of the people and what was going to happen and going to happen there ultimately to the potato famine that happened in Ireland. But she was weeping over the uh, sins of the people. And I would ask my mother, I said, well, first of all, I said, who is that? And that's your mother, Mary. Why is, what is she doing? She's crying. Why is she crying? She's crying over your sins. Well, I was about, you know, young kid in high school. She doesn't have to cry over my sins. I don't have any to begin with. So I <laughs> other people's sins. What it was is that uh, my early years of my life were existing in a family with children. I was the oldest one, had a lot of sense of responsibility taking care of my brothers and sisters. I uh, worked hard. We were kind of a poor family. We always had everything, had a home, uh, had a garden. That, so we always had enough food. After high school, I went into the Navy. Uh, that was where I was thinking of going. Why the Navy? Because at that particular time, uh, first of all, I wanted to get in, become a Navy pilot, and, um, and also to go to Annapolis if I could. I did take the tests. I hated the Navy. I came, out, <laughs> I came out of a, a warm, loving family. But after I got out of boot camp, I enjoyed it because I went, went to a couple radio schools. I was working in uh, what they call Navy intelligence. Spent two years in Yakuska in Japan. My family life, where I grew up, it was a, a kind of a beautiful life. What happened is that uh, the reason, uh, so I'm going to bring up this next segment of my life. 
in the military with being over in Japan is that uh, I was in the last year, 1950 would be last year when I was in the Navy and I was going out on Liberty. It was towards evening and it started to rain. And uh, on this big Navy base there south of Yokohama, they had um, a library there. So I went into the library and on the desk there was a book. And on the book, the cover jacket of the book showed a monk. A monk, he had his collar over his head and uh, he had his hands folded in prayer. And I said, what, who are those people? She said, well, those are Catholic monks. I said, well, I thought they all died out in the Middle Ages, you know. <laughs> I picked it up and I started looking at it and it had these pictures of these monks working out in the field. They were in uh, these, uh, the big quantitator and these monasteries praying, the hands folded in prayer. The book was written by a man called Thomas Merton. He was a monk in Gethsemane, a Trappist monk. And I started reading it and I got about halfway through it and I took it back because it started to bother me because I had plans in my life you know I had the plans I got went into the Navy I had my GI Bill I was going to go to Notre Dame I was going to get in aeronautical engineering and so I had all these things planned out for me well as I took the book back I was I started to be bothered because it was talking about God and talking about prayer talking about a spiritual life which, uh, you know, for me was going to Mass on Sunday and uh, maybe saying prayer, saying my rosary, but that was it. And, but this depicted for me a way of life in which it was totally, as it were, consumed by God. It was directed towards God. It was a kind of life in which the men that I saw or witnessed there had given themselves completely to God and were serving God in his quiet, hidden manner, away from the world, giving their life to God, and but praying for the world which I had never really thought about. So what would happen is I would go up on the top of these barracks and looking out at the sky, looking at the stars, and asking myself, Where, what am I going to do with my life? You know, I'm getting to the end of my uh, tour of duty here. Should I uh, you know, re-enlist? I, do I really want to go to Notre Dame? Yes, I did. Well, what is all this about God and the monastery? Who am I and where am I going? What is it all about? Well, something triggered me off also. It was Christmas Eve, and I was going to Mass over there in, in Japan. And uh, some uh, chief petty officers, about four of them, I heard as I was going to Mass what happened. was a lot of great consternation. They had uh, gotten drunk down at the petty officers' club. And somehow or other, they got on the wrong way in their Jeep, and they drove off a pier, and they all drowned. And I started thinking as I was going to Mass, is that the way I'm going to end up someday? Is that what it's all about? Who are you, Raymond? And where are you going? What are you going to do? So the net result of it was I went back, got the book, finished the book. And the back part of it was these pictures of these monasteries. And I wrote to one, which was in Utah. I was going to get discharged, leaving from San Francisco, going to Utah, passing through Notre Dame, going back to Pennsylvania to be at my parents' home. So um, I wrote and I said, would it be possible if I could stay and just uh, look at the place over and see what it's about? Well, I got no answer. So in a way, I was kind of relieved. <laughs> <laughs> the day we were leaving, we had a uh, mail call. What do you know? <laughs> there in my mail was a letter from the monastery saying, yes, we'd be very happy to see you. Please stop by and see us on your way home. So. <laughs> in some consternation, not exactly know what to do. Well, I decided, well, I will stop by. I might as well give him a break, you know? So, um, 
So what happened is that uh, I did get discharged and did go to there, and I was really, really highly moved by these people, by these men that were there. It was like a, it was like a big uh, farm, you know, about 2,000 acres, and I saw them working out in the fields where they were, because uh, they, they had cows there, and they were cutting the alfalfa, making bales of hay, and picking them up, putting them in the barns. And then I would see them and, you know, go into the church, and there they were praying. They got up at 2.15 in the morning, started their office at 2.30 in the morning, and they let, it was a very silent life, you know, they didn't speak. They just spoke sign language, they had sign language, the silent, the Trappist monks were that way. I was really taken aback by that. I, I don't know why, because I have never, at that particular time, I was never really attracted to be a diocesan priest. In fact, I never was attracted to be a priest at all. So, uh, but this somehow shook me up and uh, I, it really disturbed me. So I, I talked to the abbot and I said, uh, you know, I do have the GI Bill. Maybe I could use part of it. Do you think, um, uh, well, I'm going to go to school. Uh, do you think I could come back and maybe just check this place out? He says, well, he said, why don't you go to this delayed vocation school? It was in St. Mary's in Kentucky. It's not far from a Trappist monastery there in Gethsemane. It's a very intense, um, very intense study, and uh, I was accepted. And like, there you took five years of Latin in one year. You think of that, 13 classes a week. Then I took Greek, took physics. Uh, I was also, I, I loved, had Shakespeare, all these different classes. I loved to study, so I enjoyed it. So I went there, I stayed for one year, but I have to go back, because if I don't go back, it will always be in the back of my mind that I chickened out somehow or other. I didn't go in some way answer this call that I thought was coming from God. I had to do that. So I went back, went back home to my parents, stayed there in the summer, went back to school. At the end of that school year, I decided, I called, called up the Abbey and told them I was coming that fall. And they were saying, well, please come. So you welcome me and you would try out and see whether you want to stay here. And then I left home, uh, not realizing I wouldn't be back there for a long, long time. In fact, I never did go back. Never did go back to my home there in Pennsylvania. Came to the monastery and um, after a period of about 30 days being a postulant, and then two years as a novice, we had simple profession for three years. And it was a beautiful life in a way. There's a certain pattern to it. You woke up at 2.15 in the morning, you went to the, down to the church at 2.30, you sang, mostly you sang the divine office. You At that time they had what they called uh, matins and they had lauds and they had our half hour mental prayer. Then you went to prime, tear, sex, no, vespers and uh, evening prayer. So you had seven times a day at least you were in church praying. And in between times for about two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon you were out in the field working. Well, since I was a student there, I would took philosophy. We had philosophy for three years, and I had four years of theology while I was there. We would uh, at least study in the morning, and then go out and work on the farm there in the afternoon, which I was young, and I didn't mind the work. Probably, if I had a nickel for every bale of hay I picked up and put on a wagon, I'd be a millionaire today. <laughs> well, what happened then? What happened was that, um, uh, Rome sent a letter to all the monasteries and it went out to the church that anyone who was going to be teaching uh, students who were ultimately going to be ordained had to have official uh, license to teach. You know, they had to have credentials to teach. So the abbot decided he was going to send about four or five of us off to Rome. And we agreed to choose. I could have gone. So I was one of those chosen. I could have gone to the Ecole Biblique, which was in Jerusalem. I could have gone to Louvain or I could have gone to Rome. Well, 
This is 1962, going to be 1961, and 1962 to 1965 was the Vatican Council. So I decided to go to Rome, which was uh, an incredible thing for me. I had never thought I'd even be out of that monastery. Uh, the only time I left that monastery was because we were building a barn, and I had uh, got my finger caught in a, uh, um, a grinder that we were working on bolts and stuff, so I had to go down to the hospital and get it fixed up. But so we went off to the monastery, I mean off to Rome, which was very exciting, and I really loved it. So we went for a year in what they called the Angelicum, and we all had already all these studies, so this was just kind of very intense going through the whole period of philosophy, and then you took your exams, and you got a licentiate in that, so it's kind of between a master's and a doctorate. And then, um, uh, then I went to the Biblicum for two years, but I was a little older than all those other guys, and Dippicum was very hard, because some of these kids, you know, they were like, what, 21, 22? I was already close to 30. Actually, it was even more than that. I was like 36 or 37. And I remember telling this one professor who was studying Hebrew, I said, this is a terrible language. You know, there's, no, there's nothing you can hang on to. You know, if you knew Latin, you could go into French, you can go into Italian, you can go into Spanish, because they're, they're, the words are so similar. You know, the English language, 50% of it comes from Latin. 50% of our words come from the Latin, the base of the Latin language. But this was during the Vatican Council. And what was happening in the Vatican Council? Well, we would go down to the Vatican, go down to St. Peter's, bishops, cardinals, and the Pope coming to St. Peter's. They were having the conclave there. And I, who came out of a coal mining town, I, who had been in a monastery, I, whose only real witness of the Catholic Church was my parish church in this small town. But for the first time in my life, I grasped what it was to belong to the Catholic Church. And this was incredible to see. Here we are, I used to think about, all this started with Jesus telling 11 fishermen, go, teach. All that I have taught you, you go out and teach. And you baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That was 2,000 years ago, and look at this. And when you study history of the church, you say, the mystery of it all is, how was it that we did not destroy the church? That we did not destroy the church. The church is beautiful. The church herself is perfect insofar as it comes from God. But we, we're not very perfect, you know. We have a lot of flaws in us. There's a lot of ambition, a lot of greed, lust, there's anger, there's ambition. There's all kinds of things happen to people in the church. That can happen to priests, can happen to bishops, can happen to cardinals. And so there's periods of time in the history of the church where the church was in a terrible shape. It's always, as a word, called semper reformanda, always in a process of reforming itself, you know? And um, so it was exciting. It was... Uh, it was mind-banding in a way. It was uh, enriching. It was uh, the beauty of the truth and the wonder and the awe of the Catholic Church. And talking to priests, you, know, you could speak to them at least in Latin if you didn't know their language, because they mostly knew Latin. Here they are, the bishops have sent these men to learn in Rome, to study, and be the teachers in their diocese. Well, it was really, really, really wonderful. And it was exciting in the, in the sense that a lot of things were happening, especially in the school where the Biblical was run by the Jesuits. You hear these Jesuit professors talking. You wonder what in the world was going on, because there was all kinds of ideas floating around in the church at that time. So after I graduated, got my degrees, so I went back to the monastery, and the net result of that was when I went back, uh, my monastic peace was gone. 
that flow of an ordinary monastic day that had been shattered for three years, and that quiet, contemplative life that I was leading in prayer and all that. It was very, very difficult for me to get back into that. My life was different. The experiences had become different. I think I was kind of arrogant, maybe proud, or uh, being influenced in a certain way. And I was all wrong. I was the wrong one. It wasn't, what they were doing was absolutely right, great. Somehow I'd lost my peace. So I asked, well, I would like to at least go out into the world, you know, maybe, maybe be a parish priest. Although I wrote, wrote to the Navy uh, asking whether I could become a Navy chaplain. They said, fine, just go out and get some parish experience for a year and then call us, you know, write to us again. Well, I did write. And that's when I came to the L.A. Diocese, because my parents lived here in Florida. And I taught for a year, and in that year I was teaching, and it was in St. Anthony's in Long Beach. I was this innocent little monk, you know, <laughs> with all these girls. What do you do with these kids, you know? They're supposed to be, supposed to be obedient. They weren't very obedient. Why do you shut them up, you know? Why do you, why do you know how to handle them? I had a senior class, a junior class, and a freshman class. The freshman class exhausted me. I didn't know how to talk to them. I said, Father, you're using big words all the time. You know, I never talked to any kids before. Why do you use those kind of words? Use other kind of words. So it just about wrecked me. So, so back I went to the monastery. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that didn't last too long. He says, because I was still unsettled. So then he decided to come out again. So that's when I showed up in the LA Orange County Diocese. And my parents were living in, I think, a downy at that time. And so we was able to come back. And uh, the, the beauty about it was that the abbot of that monastery was also had been a diocesan priest in the LA Diocese. It was an abbot, Joe Spillane. And he had been a diocesan priest. He'd gone into the Trappist, had now become an abbot. And he would call, saw the bishop in his diocese, and uh, who had, they had been classmates in the seminary. So he said, yeah, send him out. So I came out and was then started to be a priest in the Orange Diocese at that time. So that was, uh, so I started to get involved doing parish work and doing all the things I was doing there, getting involved in um, different movements in every parish that you have. Like, I went to a Curcio, but it's a lay movement, and it's primarily a lay movement, very powerful, still going on, and probably one of the best things in the church of today, because it isn't something that just comes and goes. It hangs in there like, um, was that ever-ready battery? <laughs> And what is the battery for Casillo? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit keeps that movement going. It's a very powerful movement in the church. So these women, a woman and a man, asked me to go. And I said, oh, I, don't need a, I don't need to go to that retreat. I was a monk for all those years, you know, and I need that like another hole in my head, you know. <laughs> I, I wasn't very happy with them. What do they do with them? They said, well, Father, you know, these people in your parish here are going and maybe it'd be a good idea if you knew what was going on there, and maybe you could understand them. So I thought about that for a while, and I said, well, for their benefit, I think I can do it. <laughs> for their benefit. Well, little did I know. I went, and I was completely taken aback, because it was the first time in my life that I felt I met a group of men, especially it was a group of men, and then later on I'd be, I'd be uh, you know, the head of the thing and then have, also be there for the women. But I met a group of men of lay people who humbled me. They really humbled me. Why am I saying that? Well, they were truck drivers. They were guys who were working in all kinds of different fields. Some of them were professors. Some of them were lawyers. Some of them were doctors. Some of them were truck drivers. Some of them were ordinary lay Catholics. 
but they were very good holy men, uh, very good men. And uh, I was highly impressed. Uh, that is something that, and the Lord just really touched me. I think it affected my life. And uh, so as a result of that, then I was asked by the, the, the person who was in charge of it at that time, would I want to come up and help maybe give some talks? Because there was priests gave talks and also the lay people gave the talks. So I, I said, sure, I'd go up. So I gave some of the talks. And after a while, this priest, actually, he left. He got burned out because he was doing Spanish ones. He was doing English ones. And he just got burned out. Uh, his, uh, he belonged to religious order. And uh, as a result, the bishop came and asked me if I wanted to do this. Rather reluctantly, I said I would. And so, and then, so I became a head of it for about 23 and a half years. For me, anyway, it was one of the most uh, formative years of, um, I would say, Catholic spirituality in the sense that it wasn't, as it were, zeroed in on my priesthood as priesthood, although that was always there and always being regenerated and uh, made stronger by doing this for the lay people. But it was something that gave me a great appreciation for the layperson, uh, a sense of humility at times, listening to these men talk and all the suffering they had to undergo. And um, I became great friends with them because at the end of it, you had, uh, we used to group. I'm still grouping after 25 years with a group of men every once a week, every Thursday, six or seven of us. And right now, I'm calling us a geriatric club. But you, grow, you get to know them their, and their wives and their children and everything. And it is, it is like a, because um, you talk about your spiritual life, you talk about what you're doing for God, what you're reading, how you're trying to improve in your spiritual life. And uh, it's like uh, you're, you're, you're in a certain sense becoming responsible to these men and they're becoming responsible to you to live their Catholic faith, to live their Catholic faith. Well, in the meantime, when I was doing that in 1992, uh, I met a woman, uh, her name was Billy Walters, and she said to me, I don't know how I met her, probably through confession or something, that she said she had heard about this uh, uh, Magnificat movement. I said, well, I don't know what that, I never heard of it. She said, well, something's coming out of New Orleans. It's where, it's, uh, it's a movement dedicated for women to help women. It's based upon the spirituality of Mary visiting her cousin Elizabeth. And in this particular case, you have... Uh, two pregnant women, which is, uh, and one helping the other. One is the mother of God, one is John the Baptist in her womb. And uh, they're trying to uh, develop, it comes out of New Orleans, trying to develop a movement in the church that would be a very strong uh, movement for women. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. I had five sisters, and I felt that one of the things lacking in the church was a kind of... Uh, what I felt was a strong woman movement. And this was both Marian, but it was also charismatic. It was very strong Marian movement, and it also was charismatic. In the process, I had also met Kathleen there. Um, she was in the less than that clinic, helping out this clinic for poor people. And um, I was on the board for a while, along with her. And on that board, they were affirming each other. And, uh, and I was sitting there as a Catholic priest, wondering, I don't know whether I should be here. This is, this is rather strange. So, uh, yeah, these were bankers and everything else, so I didn't know exactly how to handle that. But anyway, so I met her. I was on a tour with her in Lourdes. We met in Lourdes, and there, after we came out of Lourdes, um, she asked me one time whether I would be her spiritual director. And um, 
I said, well, okay. I says, driver, all right. We'll be. I said, what we will do? I said, well, we'll. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go to um, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, what is one of these places? Um, what is one of these fast food places? You know, Spires or uh, McDonald's. We'll go to McDonald's and I'll hear your spirit. We'll have spiritual direction here and we can have lunch at the same time. <laughs> well, it didn't work out that way. So I did become her spiritual director and in the process I asked her whether she would become part of this team and she has and it has been a very wonderful thing both for her and also for Magnificat. But so I was involved in that, also involved in Magnificat, which is where I am now. And in the process of being in Magnificat, it was uh, with this uh, charismatic aspect to it. Um, well, gradually, one way or another, you know, I, I somehow or other, I was able to develop this speaking in tongues, as they call it. I was never much for you know, what they call slain, being slain in the spirit, you know. I always wonder what happened to those poor people. <laughs> Um, I remember, I remember, I was in, uh, where was that? I think it was, uh, I forget what church that I was in. The first time I was there, and he told me that, you know, these people here, I was there for like a healing mass, and it was a charismatic mass. And he said, Father, and then you can pray over these people, and uh, don't worry if they start to fall. I said, well, why would they want to do that? <laughs> and so she said, well, they will. We'll have people catching them. Okay. So, I, so one woman came up, the very first one, and prayed over her, and whew, down she went. Well, they caught her, and I said, oh, she's going to hurt herself, these people. So what happened? So what happened? The next woman came up, and I saw her. I was looking at her, praying at her, looking in her eyes, and she started, her eyes started looking a little glazed. I said, don't you do that. <laughs> well, well, she didn't. She didn't. I shocked her no end. You know. But so I got involved in uh, with these healing masses and doing that from time to time. And also I was working, went to Intercessors of the Lamb over in Omaha, and where they, where they have, uh, the, after their different conference, different parts of the conference, they would have mass and people praying over people, so that would occur. So it is something that is going on in the church. And uh, Magnificat is, has become a very important part of my, I've retired from Curcio. Magnificat is, in many ways has become something that I have become uh, more involved with. It is a movement that I did ask, that once we got the group together, I said, let's go see the bishop. So we went to see the bishop and we gave him who we all were, what we wanted to do, and Kathy and them gathered up all the material from New Orleans, gave it to him, because it had gone through, we had a canon lawyer to put up all the rules and regulations and things. And as a result, uh, the bishop said, yes, you could start it, and so we started it. Now I think, I don't know, what is 50, how many have we had? 50 some, about 18 years, about 50 of whatever it is. And uh, every once in a while, when I turn on EWTN, I'll see one of our speakers, like Jonette Benkovich. I know she was there, and some of the bishops. We had the uh, last couple ones, Bishop Corte Leone, and we've had Bishop Sartos, we've had Bishop Corte Leone's mother. Uh, you know what's beautiful about Bishop Corte Leone's mother? She's a very simple woman. She, um, she's Italian, of course, and um, she, her husband was a fisherman and very frequently out on the ocean fishing, and when they brought in the fish, they had the money. When they didn't bring in the fish, then they, they had difficulty, they had to borrow money, but they always paid it back. But she lived a very Catholic life, and um, very simple, very authentic, very real, 
you know, nothing, uh, you might say, flashy or nothing uh, extraordinary, but a very, what I consider, almost like my mother, I think, who lives a kind of hidden Catholic life where there's a great love for Mary, there's a love for our Lord, they love the rosary, they go to the sacraments, they take care of their children, they're responsible for their children, they have raised children who have, in most respects, have followed them and they have influenced them, uh, they have touched their, uh, touched their husbands, and uh, to my way of thinking, they're the kind of the heart of the church. You know, there is, um, since I've had five sisters, I've always been affected by, I might say, the women around me in a way. Close of the Second Vatican Council on December 8th, I've always loved this, what it says here about women in general. And the tragic thing of it is, is some of it has gone awry in, some, in a certain different way with feminism in a wrong way. And it, but the closing of the council, it says, way back in 1965, it says, it is to you that we address ourselves, these all these bishops and everything, you women of all states, girls, wives, mothers, and widows, to you also consecrated virgins and women living alone. You constitute half of the immense human family. He said, as you know, the church is proud to have glorified and liberated women. And who's the most glorified and liberated woman we know? It's her blessed mother in the union that she had with her son. She was the most free woman that we know in the sense that she was the one closest to Jesus. And the closer you are to the Lord, the freer you are because you're entering into that dynamic life and union with God. God is infinitely free. And those who belong to God and the deeper they are with God live a freedom in the surrender of their will to God that is the freedom that God gives to them. And they are a slave to no one or nothing. They live in the freedom of their union with Christ. They live in the freedom of, of love because that's what it's all about. Anyway, it says, the church is proud of glorified and liberated woman. And in the course of the centuries, in diversity of characters, to have brought into relief her basic equality with man. That's in spite of, you might say, the cultural situation that exists in different countries. Because in some countries, obviously, there's always been the dominance of the male. But because of Christ, because of this woman, because of her relationship with Jesus, I can say just, I think this is true of every man, I can say this to myself, that Mary has always been the one who has in some way formed in me a respect for woman. A respect for woman. Why? Because she is woman. The most beautiful woman. And uh, uh, that's beautiful, not merely in a sense of a physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, in the moral sense, that she, in union with God, who's infinitely beautiful, is an infinitely beautiful woman within herself as a person. And in fact, I've always said this about all those visionaries, all the saints who have ever in any way had anything, any kind of vision of Mary, their common refrain is what? She is so beautiful. She is so beautiful. The radiance of a soul in grace. In fact, the saints will say this. If we could see our souls in grace, we would probably want to bow down. But God will not allow us to see that. Only someday we will see it. It's like Jesus in the transfiguration where on that radiantly beautiful Lord on that mountain there, they in wonder and awe, down they went. Well, so someday, hopefully, we will have that radiance and beauty of ourselves, which she has already always had from the very first moment of her conception. She knew no sin. She was always in total union with God. But he says here, her quality with man. So there is a basic, fundamental 
oneness of equality, in our oneness with Christ and in Christ. We go into all kinds of biblical phrases for that, but we won't. But it says, but the hour is coming, in fact has come, when the vocation of woman is being achieved in its fullness, the hour in which woman acquires in the world an influence and effect and a power never hitherto achieved. That is why at this moment when the human race is undergoing so deep a transformation, women impregnated with the spirit of the gospel. That's the fundamental key point. Impregnated with the spirit of the gospel. That is the good news. And the good news is what? You are a child of God. Jesus has redeemed you. You are loved by God, created by God. And you're destined for eternal life with a beauty and a joy you cannot even comprehend. So impregnated with that spirit, they can do much to aid mankind in not falling. Women, you who know how to make truth sweet, tender, and accessible, make it your task to bring the spirit of this council into institutions, schools, homes, and daily life. Women of the entire universe, whether Christian or non-believing, you to whom life is entrusted at this grave moment in history, it is for you to save the peace of the world. Just think what's on your shoulders, on your shoulders. And the beauty, what is the beauty of Magnificat? We just read it to you. It brings out a dignity and a value and a purpose and a destiny that belongs to you. And no one can take it away. I don't care who, as a word, will put you down, who may try to dominate you, who may try to control you. You cannot and should not allow that freedom you have in Christ to ever be destroyed. It does not mean you do not love. You love but you love with his love, in his love, and by his love, with the purity of that love, that will not die. I want to simply say that you who come to Magnificat, I would hope you always come, you pick up the spirit of Magnificat, about the dignity and value you have as a woman, and you touch other women in your life. You know, this is not meant to be something you, as it were, imbibe, you have within your heart and mind and soul, that you keep within yourself, but you should try to give it away. You lift up other women. You help other women to know the dignity that they possess. You teach them to open their hearts to God. Teach them to love God. Teach them to love our Blessed Mother. I'm in conclusion. I am just going to read this. This is a letter that Kathleen has written for Magnificat that's going to be sent to all the cardinals and bishops throughout the world. They ask her to do this because they want to bring before the church and before other bishops and all those in the church this role that uh, Magnificat sees that it carries into the church and is present within the church. So I want to read this to you. It says here, In this specially designated year for priests, Magnificat, a ministry to Catholic women, extends our heartfelt support and profound appreciation for your continuous fiat to live and serve as shepherds of the flock of Christ. In other words, you as women are expressing you're totally, totally uh, one and with the role that they play within the church that Christ has given to them. So at the outset of the year for priests, with great joy, Magnificat chapters around the world, we have 75 of them and it keeps growing all the time, inaugurated a program of spiritual adoption of priests committing to hours of adoration, continuous rosaries, sacrificial giving and fasting for bishops, priests, and seminarians. You know, one thing I will say, just, in, just a, in, an add in here, when I was looking at that woman, the mother of the Bishop Corte Leone, uh, what was her name, Elisa, Elaine, Mary. Mary, Mary, she's, what I was thinking to myself, 
the, the role that, that, priest, that he played as a priest, the role that he's going to play as a bishop, she shares in all the good that that bishop will do. She shares in that. There's a relationship, would be true of all your mothers, with whatever your religious life, whatever, but in this particular case, we're thinking of her. All the good that that bishop will do redounds back upon her because she is the one through whom he was brought into the world, the one and helped to form and fashion him by the love of God. And this is why when you think of the ultimate model and example of that is whom? Is somehow Mary who shares and that union in, with, and through Christ to whom the Father, or whom the Father has asked, and she has said her yes, that she would say yes in the mystery of faith and hope and love to be the mother of Christ. Established in 1981 in the Archdiocese of New Orleans, Louisiana, as a canonically approved private association of Christian faithful, Magnificat has evangelized and brought spiritual growth to the lives of hundreds of thousands of women. Presently, there are 75 chapters worldwide. Magnificat constitutes a family of Catholic women, wives, mothers, sisters, daughters, married, single, and consecrated, all of whom have taken Mary as our model in order to love and serve the Lord as obedient daughters of the church. Consecrated to the Immaculate Heart, we have prayed that Mary, mother of the eternal high priest, impart to us her maternal solicitude and agape charity for the priesthood. You are very dear to us, they're addressing the bishops and the cardinals. We are aware that as successors to the apostles, you bear a considerable weight shepherding Christ's flock especially in this hour when so deep a purification of the church, particularly the priesthood, is taking place. We hope that the prayerful support of the Magnificat family will bring you strengthening consolation, because there are a lot of priests affected by what's going on that really can go into a tailspin, I'll tell you. We pray that you feel the warmth of our affection to counterbalance cold criticism of the secular press. We thank you for your many efforts to promote a culture of life to uphold the sanctity of marriage, and to bring healing to victims of abuse. We note that you are intensifying efforts to create safe environments within the church where people can experience the welcoming, protective love of God. You do so much more for your people that go unnoticed and unrecognized. Thank you for all your acts of love, hard work, and prayerful initiatives to restore faith and rekindle love. The Magnificat Handbook includes a quote from the solemn closing of the Second Vatican Council on December 8, 1965. The Council stated, at this moment, when the human race is undergoing so deep a transformation, women impregnated with the spirit of the gospel can do much to aid mankind to not falling. Women of the entire universe, whether Christian or non-believing, you to whom life is entrusted at this grave moment in history, it is for you to save the peace of the world. It is through your priestly ministry that we receive the sacramental life that allows us to achieve our feminine ideal as spiritual mothers, guardians of life, and builders of the family. It is because you are other Christ that we can be other Marys, according to the Lord's complementary intent. The Magnificat family offers a Marian supporting role to our good shepherds. If there is anything more that you envision we could do to aid your priestly ministry, please contact us. Magnificat's spiritual adoption of priests will not end on the Feast of the Sacred Heart 2010. 
Rather, we shall continue to be your spiritual mothers, sisters and daughters, according to God's inspiration and grace. May God make our humble offering in your behalf fruitful, especially in the area of vocations. In closing, on April 4th, in his message, Orbi et Orbi, Pope Benedict XVI stated, Humanity today needs to free itself from sin, not by making superficial changes, but through a true moral and spiritual conversion. So much of humanity's moral and spiritual conversion is entrusted into your anointed hands. Like Mary, we are here to help you by serving humbly and by keeping a vigil of unceasing prayer to encourage and strengthen you to, quote, do whatever he tells you. Thank you for your continuous fiat. In the Immaculate Heart of Mary, Mother of all priests, we remain your servants, and it has here uh, the Magnificat Central Service Team with the names behind it. But um, so I would encourage all of you who not only come here, but to have that sense of your dignity, the sense of your value that you play in our world of today, which is very, very important. Because otherwise, we will just become barbarians. We will become, I think, man without woman just becomes more and more violent, cold, callous, and indifferent. And without your maternal help, without your prayers, for the priests and for the bishops, they will lose that femininity or that openness in simplicity and gentleness and love that they need to be true shepherds. But when we look at Jesus holding a lamb, and we're all his lambs, they have to have that sense of image in their own minds that they themselves are gentle with the lambs of the church, with the lambs in the world. Um, we're the light, we're the salt. So uh, I will pray for you, and you not only pray for me, but pray for all priests and bishops and the cardinals, pray for our church. The world does not like us, the world will always hate us. And Jesus says there is a world that doesn't, he does not even pray for, a world filled with anger and violence and hatred that Jesus has um, put simply when he talks about the prince of this world. As he said in the Last Supper, he says, the prince of this world is coming. Or as he would say elsewhere in John's Gospel, uh, I do not pray. How does he put that? He says, the priest says, the prince of this world who thinks that he has everything that is here and yet it all belongs God, who has his arrogance and pride and denial and disobedience. Well, that prince rules so many in the world. And you and the church is meant to have that gentleness, humility, obedience, and above all love for God, for the eternal word made flesh Jesus, for the Holy Spirit, and uh, to love that mother who will always do as you turn to her, will always say, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, and you will be with him forever in his heart before the Father in the Holy Spirit. Well, we certainly hope you have enjoyed Father Raymond Skinesny. And for more information or a copy of today's broadcast, please write us at Magnificat Proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, 92859. Once again, Magnificat proclaims, P.O. Box 2983, Orange, California, zip code 92859. And for some of you, it might be easier to call. So feel free to call us 
at 800-500-4556. If you would like to have more information about the Magnificat ministry, including a location of a Magnificat chapter in your area, you can call 504-828-MARY. That's 504-828-MARY. Or visit the Magnificat website at www.magnificat-ministry.org. On behalf of Magnificat Proclaims, this is Donna Ross inviting you to join us next time as we present more personal testimonies from our inspirational Catholic speakers. Remember, Magnificat proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you in his peace.